0: Welcome to the Indigo Podcast, an exploration of human flourishing at work and beyond. I'm Ben Barron of Indigo Anchor and Cleveland State University. And I'm Chris Everett of Indigo Anchor. For more information, please visit us at
1: www.indigopodcast.com. Hey, so today's episode is race, organizations, and the role of leaders with Enrica Ruggs.
0: That's right. We are so blessed to have Enrica Ruggs with Yay. us here today. Yay! We'll I'll introduce her here in a second, but you know, this is a huge topic, and we're gonna talk about it in a variety of ways, but we're gonna talk about kind of this overall landscape of racism. We're gonna talk about racism and organizations in particular, and then we're gonna try to talk about what can we do to make progress? What's the role of leadership with regard to this whole topic? Uh, so I'll just introduce Enrica really quickly. So Enrica Ruggs, is an assistant professor of management and director of the Center for Workplace Diversity and Inclusion in the Fogelman College of Business and Economics at the University of Memphis. That was a mouthful. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) So she earned her uh, bachelor's degree in psychology and uh, and a BA in English from Prairie View A&M University and earned her PhD in industrial organizational psychology from Rice University. In her research, she examines individual, organizational, and societal factors that influence inequity in the workplace. Her work focuses on the manifestation of subtle forms of discrimination and mistreatment toward employees with stigmatized identities, the outcomes of these behaviors, and strategies that individuals and organizations can engage in to combat and reduce discrimination. Her research has been published in premier academic outlets such as the Journal of Applied Psychology, and the Journal of Management. And coincidentally, Enrika is also just super smart and friendly, and we're just so pleased to have Enrika on the Indigo Podcast. Welcome, Enrika Ruggs, to the Indigo Podcast.
2: Yes, welcome. <laughs> thank you. Thank you, Ben and Chris. I'm excited to be here. So I am a fan of the Indigo Podcast. So thank you all for inviting me after I Kind of found you all on Twitter.
0: Oh, that, that's so nice of you to say. And I just do, do want to clarify that um, we're not... We didn't invite you to be uh, a guest on our podcast only because you're a fan. Like, even if you weren't a fan, we would still invite you to join us. It, it, it would hurt our
1: feelings. It, it would. But yeah. we would do it. I would cry at night, but...
0: <laughs> yes
2: <laughs> that's the, good to know
0: <laughs> yes the the primary criterion for inviting you was your area of or is your area of expertise um but these other things are just added icing on the cake i su- i suppose so
2: yeah
1: <laughs> all right so so let's get to it right so the racism landscape all yeah. right enrica what's racism
2: Oh, man, that's a big question, right? Um, So I I think that when we talk about racism and think about racism, a lot of people think about individual level racism and, and racist. So this is that idea that individuals harbor these prejudicial attitudes against people who are racial minorities. And in turn, they behave in ways that are negative towards individuals who belong to that group. So for instance, I don't like Black people, and so I discriminate against them. And so that's the very individual level um, idea of racism and, and what it means to be racist. But we also have and we're starting to talk about this a bit more, um, institutional level racism or structural racism. And so this is really this idea that systems like our policies, our laws, our our practices um, can have um, racism embedded into them, right? So they can reinforce and uphold racial inequality. So we see this in our education systems, in our occupational systems. And so this is really um, what we're talking about when we're talking about systemic or more structural forms of racism. And there's been a lot of attention the last few years talking about unconscious bias, right? And sometimes um, these systemic forms of racism can occur at a very unconscious level. So we're really just talking about, we have these associations that are sometimes automatic that we make in our mind um, about groups of people based on stereotypes that we know and that we've heard. And sometimes that can lead to behaviors that um, are negative towards individuals within that group of people. But... We have to be really careful when we're talking about racism. It's not all unconscious bias, right? And, and I'm sure we'll talk about yeah, this a little there's bit There's some later.
1: people in white hoods out there, right? Yeah. <laughs> there's nothing unconscious about their racism. Exactly. I mean, that's their whole, you know, weenie boys club is all about being... Numbskulls about race. Gosh. Right.
0: Yeah. And th- those people do <laughs> exist, right? When yes. we're talking about individual level racism and uh and that's very conscious bias and reinforced in a conscious way. And yes. that's a, another issue altogether, right?
1: Absolutely. You know, I, one of the things that was interesting for me, and I'm not, you know, I don't know. I don't have a PhD in history. Like there's so much knowledge to be gained here. But growing up, the idea of racist was, you know every other hour, I'm thinking something negative about a minority group, right? And, you know, the the dictionary probably even has some version of that kind of descriptor, right, of a definition. But despite what's going on in lay people's minds and how they're using stuff, there's this whole body of academics that are actually starting to peel apart this onion here and say, wait a minute, it's not just being angry at minorities all the time. Like that's, that's probably like, unless you're one of those weenies in a white hood, that's probably hard for an individual to actually sustain, but there's all these other things going. And so the dictionary is probably not the best place to go to look for information (laughs) about racism, right?
2: Absolutely. I mean, I think that you're absolutely right. So people often think about, oh, the only people who are racist are these people who are actively Um, thinking about how they dislike people based on their race and who are actively um, and consciously always engaging in these negative acts. But racism occurs in lots of different forms. And so in the academic literature, we talk about modern racism as Mm. a, a form or a manifestation of racism. And it's this idea of thinking that discrimination no longer exists. It's not a problem. So racial discrimination isn't a problem. Therefore, we have no work to do. Right. Or... Wait a minute. So let, let, let's let unpack that. Yeah. So in the literature
1: that and I've never heard of this term, modern racism, modern right? racism. And that's that's the idea that that we can get a margarita and chillax about this stuff.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, so we pass, um, you know, Civil Rights Act 1964. What else do black people want? um and and that's really the idea so people are pushing too hard um they have the rights that they need there's discrimination isn't a thing um or it's a thing of the past right that's ancient ancient history and so yeah um, it's
0: funny I, i don't have any data behind this but my assumption would be that a lot of the people who probably assume that there isn't that discrimination isn't a problem that racism doesn't exist are probably not people who are minorities themselves just a wild guess
2: just a wild wild guess guess. i mean the the data would support that
1: (laughs) but i I gotta be honest with you guys when i started coming to this stuff and my friend Kay and uh dc helped kick off some of this modern stuff for me it you know i'm used to having a good handle on the major issues in history and life and society and I'm not going to say like I'm a blameless victim here, but I didn't get a lot of this stuff in my K through 12 and college education. And so when I come to this, I mean, well, I did. I'd learned about the civil rights movement. You know, I'd go to Memphis. I'm a big student of jazz. You know, I've read a lot of like um, to be or not to bop, you know, Dizzy Gillespie's biography, Sidney Bechet's Treatment. You know, I'd kind of come to I was like, yeah, this was a really, really bad thing. But because of this idea of race and discrimination, and then there's some moral questions of who you are as a person are part of this, it it gets very hard to come and say like, you know, I don't know what the heck I'm talking about. This is all around me. It touches all these parts of my life and my education and history. And I don't know, it's a bit of an ego hit, honestly. I mean, right?
2: Yeah, absolutely. I think that it's hard for people to um, some people to come to terms with the idea that racism does still exist and not just in this very unconscious sort of, oh, I didn't mean to do this type of way, but that we have systemic racism, that um, people are disadvantaged in a very systematic way. And I think part of the reason that it's hard for people to come to terms with this is what does that mean for me? Right. If there are some people who are disadvantaged um, for no fault of their own, then we have to think about what that means for the people who are advantaged, right? And advantaged not just because they worked hard or worked harder than racial minorities, but advantage because of privilege right and because of all of these historical factors that have led to racial inequality and um, the present things that continue to uphold that inequality that we see
1: right um so some of the idea and I think at, at least for me this stuff that kind of got my inner chimp hackles up you know where you start to feel oh, maybe triggered or flooded a little bit it's like well I, well I'm a am I a moral failure here? How, how should we think about moral failing as, we, as people address this and start to explore this personally?
2: Yeah, so when you say, am I a moral failure, do you mean because you don't have the, all of the information that racism is as problematic as it is? I mean,
1: I think, I think there's a, a lot of that. Um, I know I came out, I'm, no, I'm atheist now, but I came out of the evangelical background. And I know a lot of this stuff started, you know, well, you haven't done the work might be something. Well, well, you know, coming back to that very legalistic religious mindset, it's like, well, what do I need to say? Like, you know, five prayers and read six books or right. It's not that kind of journey. And I I think the human psyche can, can struggle with a destination that that's unclear
2: yeah absolutely um and i think that what happens for people is they they socially distance or they psychologically distance i should say um from racism and they say well i'm not personally racist right i have um friends from a variety of different racial backgrounds so i'm not yeah i have a black I have a black, I have black friends. (laughs) I have black friends. And so clearly I can't be racist, right?
1: Go ask your black friend. (laughs) He'll probably tell you, it's like, listen, dude, I love you and everything.
2: (laughs) But shoot. (laughs) Yeah. So I I think that there is this idea, right? That we are trying to make sure that our own um, self-image stays intact, right? We want to see ourselves Ultimately, most people do as egalitarian um, and and not racist. But when we uphold the status quo, right, that also upholds racism and, and racist ideologies. And so, that doesn't mean that we're a moral failure, um, but it means that we all have some work to do.
0: Yeah. Well, I think what you raise there is how these ideas, especially perhaps if you haven't experienced racism. Um, you know, these ideas that racism still exists and the discrimination is still a problem that can be rather threatening, that idea can be rather threatening for people, right? Because they're like, no, I, I feel like things are good in society, things are good and people just need to get over it. Um, And that that, that perhaps can explain some of the resistance uh, that people may initially feel uh, to the idea that, no, there's, there's still progress that, a lot of progress that needs to be made in society and in our organizations.
2: Absolutely, I, I think that, Um, for many people, it's what you just said, Ben. Um, We see the progress. And if you've never experienced racial discrimination, it can be difficult to understand that it exists, right? So there are people who say, well, I've been stopped by the police and, you know, they are very nice to me. They don't um, rough me up and things like that. So that Black man who experienced police brutality or police use of force, they must have done something because the police just don't do that because they've never had any experiences dealing with the police in which they showed this type of force. And so it's really these two different experiences that that people have that um, can sometimes make it hard to come to grips with the fact that racism does exist. Yeah,
1: this is a level of blindness that I see in CEOs all the time, you know what do you mean? Everybody in my company freaking loves me.
2: Yes (laughs) Hey,
1: Jack Wagon, like they tell you, like, you know you come into the office with your fly down like 30% of the time
2: (laughs) I think that part of it too was people felt like and, and we did make some progress, right? But um when President Obama was elected, it was like he started hearing terms like we're post-racial now. The country mm. is post-racial. And
1: um that's like the flare from Office Space. Did you ever see Office <laughs> I Space? I did. Yes. She's you know, hey, where's your flare? Well, what do you mean? I am supposed to have six pieces of flair. Yes. You just want six pieces of flare?
2: <laughs> yeah you know and it's
1: like it's like it's like it, it, the wrong way to look at it is it's like what's the minimum viable non-racism i can be <laughs> exactly like, i read my three books yeah <laughs> i went to a lecture listened to a podcast right that i'm a good person now
2: <laughs> i'm anti-racist i know everything that there is to know about right. anti-racism um but it's a long journey. Mm It's a racism that's been around in this country for 400 years. We're not going to solve it in um, two weeks by reading three books and listening to one podcast. That's right.
0: That's right. You know, it it kind of um, makes me think about how some organizations have been dealing with and have been talking about uh, these types of issues following the murder of George Floyd. And in particular, the one that's most salient to me, um, is how the Navy has been dealing with it, because as our listeners know, I'm also a reserve officer in the United States Navy. And, uh, you know, I had a, a conversation with actually with, I'm the commanding officer of a unit right now. And I um, had a conversation with my sailors yesterday um, about this topic. Right. I said, you know, we're going to talk about this and I want to kind of share what the Navy is saying and so forth. And what I found have found to be, um positive is kind of the Navy's leader, the Navy from a leadership perspective, their approach towards the entire topic. So I just want to read a little quote for for you. This is from uh, the Chief of Naval Operations, uh, Mike Gilday. He's a four-star admiral, top-ranked officer in the Navy, right? And um, on June 3rd, so not long after the murder of George Floyd, he put out a statement, and he had a video where he talked about this, and it was—if you watch the video, it's very heartfelt. You can tell it's sincere, and he's followed it up with other things, which would lead me to um, believe that it is. But one, one quote, one short thing that he said really, I think, spoke to a good way to approach this topic. And here's what he said, and I quote: "I've been in the Navy for a long time, and I've had a lot of experiences." Something I have never experienced, and something I will never experience, is that I will never walk in the shoes of a black American or any other minority. I will never know what it feels like when you watch that video of Mr. Floyd's murder. And I can't imagine the pain and the disappointment and the anger that many of you felt when you saw that, because it's not the first time. It's happened time and time again in our country. And then he goes on and talks about the importance of listening and. Uh, continuing to treat people with dignity and respect, but coming to a bigger understanding of what that means. And I thought, I thought that was a really good way to approach it. And then he's followed it up with having a task force to look at different policies and procedures within the Navy and so forth. Um, but I think that that's, that's a pretty good way, I think, particularly... For people who are not minorities to start to approach this as, hey, I just need to listen for a little bit and try to empathize. It's not that I'm going to understand. I'm not. I'm never going to walk in those shoes. My background and my identity is what it is, um, but I can do my best to try to empathize. What do you
1: think, Enrique? Is is that baloney, or is that a good way to think about it?
2: That's a great way to think about it. I mean, the the research shows that empathy is really one of the key things that we need when we're trying to change people's um, attitudes um, around topics such as prejudice and discrimination. Um, And so I think that that's a very insightful realization to come to, to say that, you know, I've never experienced this, but I can only imagine it. And so when we think about how to get to empathy, trying to imagine um, what it feels like can be really helpful. So this idea of perspective taking, and there's a lot of social psychology that that looks at this. And so Jane Elliott, I'm not sure if you're familiar with the brown eyes, blue eyes experiment that she did um, many years ago with uh, children in a classroom where she had the children break up some had brown eyes, some had blue eyes, and treating the the students who had blue eyes one day very nice and positively and sort of ignoring the brown-eyed students, and then flipping that the next day and treating the brown-eyed students very positively and nice and sort of ignoring the blue-eyed students and thinking about, okay, well, how does you know, having them do this exercise, how do you feel when that happens? So trying to put them in that perspective and saying, well, this is how it feels when you're excluded in society and you experience um, discrimination. And it can really help to increase this this empathy that he was talking about.
1: So so tell me about changing attitudes. What What could you summarize from the literature that we've learned in any of the movements in history where hey, the prevailing opinion's bad, it's garbage and and we need to change it. And then, so what, what's that project plan? What's the psychology look like? What What's going on under the hood there?
2: Changing attitudes is hard. <laughs> right? it's, a so, it's, it. It. <laughs> it's a big question. Dang it. It's a big question. And so what the literature says is, you know, it is tough changing attitudes. Um, we know how to change people's behavior. And um, so we see that with things like laws, right, when we tell people you cannot discriminate, um, explicitly discriminate against people because of their race or gender, national origin, these types of things, Um, although we do see different manifestations. What we do see, though, is increasing empathy can help, particularly over time. So if we can get to a place where we can increase empathy, so um, with this perspective taking, like I just talked about, and also Um, changing the social norms. And that starts by changing behavior. Over time, it seems like that helps to change people's attitudes on a larger scale. So if we think about um, racial attitudes um, in the 1940s versus now, we would say at least explicitly on the whole, um, they seem to be a little bit better, although we still have work to do.
1: So let me just brief that back to you. So we can't take a surgical dry conversation, right? We actually need some hearts to come along. And one of the way to get those hearts is through empathy. Yes. Right. And then, so, and then we also need like some structural things that shift the norms, even, (laughs) you know, if it doesn't fit, force it. If it breaks, it needed replacing anyway. Right. So we got to change some laws, like the anti-discrimination laws specifically to maybe start kickstarting that engine in the the right direction.
2: Absolutely, I mean, I think that if we are waiting for everybody to just do the right thing, then... um, Oh man, I just think
1: of in the military. All right, soldiers, do the right thing. And there's always a couple of those jack wagons that have like, I don't know. (laughs) They come past curfew, you know, we're supposed to move out an hour ago. Sorry, sorry. (laughs) People don't work that way, right?
2: People don't work that way. and, And some of it is, you know, these really conscious things, but some of it is because people don't see the problem. Like they don't even recognize the problem. And so they don't know where to begin. And so really putting the structure in place and helping people to change behavior and, um, change the way that they're thinking about things is really helpful.
1: And I think about that crisis communication episode we did, Ben, right? Where people decide because they start looking to signals from
0: their group. Mm -hmm. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So, you know, one thing I'm just, I think it's important for us to recognize too, is that, you know, we're recording this on July 13th of 2020 and that, and it's no mistake that we thought this would be, be a good topic to talk about. Um, We were waiting for a little while to do it. Um, I'm curious to know from your perspective, Enrique. you know, what, first of all, is there something bigger at work in terms of, is it different now? Is there some sort of change that's happening um, that's more pronounced following, and I'm speaking specifically about following the murder of George Floyd and the protests that happened afterwards. Um, Is there something about our collective consciousness that has changed a little bit? Is, you know, because that wasn't obviously the, the first instance of police brutality towards a minority. Um, what What's going on? What do you think?
2: I think that's a great question. And it does feel different, right? And when the protest first started, I thought about this a lot because I was thinking, well, you know, if we look at Eric Garner, that he was murdered in 2014 in a very similar way, and we didn't see this type of action. If we think about Philando Castile and Alton Sterling in um, 2016, right? And those murders um, were horrific. You had Philando Castile being videotaped, um, being shot in his car, and we didn't see the same groundswell that we're seeing now. What I think is different is that people are, um, and not just, minority individuals and the people who have been allies for a while, but more people are becoming uncomfortable with being uncomfortable. So you have this global pandemic that's also happening right now and people are seeing how that is um, disproportionately devastating black and brown communities. And then on top of that, um, we have the administration that is sort of stoking the fires, so to speak.
1: Yeah, they are. Yeah, I just want to say, yes, they are.
2: Yes. Um, So in terms of the rhetoric, right, around how we're talking about race and and racial discrimination, and um, was that a year or two ago when you had Trump saying there are good people on both sides at this white supremacist rally? Complete. Nobody
1: can say both sides anymore, even when you need to after that. Yeah,
2: it's horrible it's horrible. So you have this culmination of um, things that I think have been building. And then with the global pandemic, and then seeing George Floyd, and it was such a long time, right? Mm. If you think about almost nine minutes. I just paused for not even 10 seconds, right? It's a devastating long time. and, And people are just uncomfortable. And I also think so you had more people going out to these protests. And I think that white people in particular saw that going to Black Lives Matters protests were not what they were portrayed in the media in maybe 2016 and 2014. So it's not just that, oh, everybody who went to these protests were looters and, and rioters. And so the police just had to come out and um, hit them with batons to restore order.
1: Yeah, we saw that 75-year-old guy just get, I mean, my eight-year-old daughter is more threatening than that guy was and and just get pushed over. On, on, and those guys got
2: acquitted. Yeah. And so ah. more people are seeing, I think, a different reality than perhaps what they've seen in the past. And so you have this culmination of events that I think does make it feel different than it has in more recent times.
0: Yeah. You know, one thing that I have been thinking about too, is that certainly the trigger for some of the more recent unrest related to this topic was the instance of, uh, George Floyd being murdered. Um, but it seems like that, you know, so police brutality is, is one issue. And actually, you know, if you look at the data, um, it's, it's, it's certainly an issue, but it's not as big of an issue overall in terms of discrimination as probably a lot of other issues that kind of are under the surface. So sometimes I'll hear people, for example, say, you know, they'll cite the thing, the statistics around um, police brutality and so forth. And believe me, I have a ton of wonderful friends in law enforcement. I think what they do is extremely hard. I I, I hold all of them that I know in very high esteem. Um, Uh, You know, but I hear people who say who come out and say, well, you know, the data don't really you know, there's not a whole lot of people who are actually killed by police and so forth. Um, So these protests are unjustified. But in my mind, what I'm wondering is it seems like, yeah, that was a trigger point for these protests. But there's a lot more going on. Right. That 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 was being discussed and what was on people's minds. It wasn't just about police stuff. Um, Am I off there or is that fairly accurate?
2: That's fairly accurate. And I would say that even if you look at just the police stuff, George Floyd was really a trigger point, but it's not just the, um, killing of George Floyd. It's the overall, if we look at the criminal justice system and Mm. the police use of force. And so, um, there's racial bias in policing, just in terms of People getting pulled over and having their cars searched more often black people than compared to white people and um, sort of how policing is different. And so you have that on top of um, just the oppression that people are feeling, like I said, with COVID and the unemployment rates being they were already disproportionate when we look at the cut across race and racial demographics. but. They've um, skyrocketed, rocketed for um, Hispanic communities and also for Black communities. And when we look at the death rates in these, um, and who's also just getting sick right from right. COVID, um, they're they're disproportionate. And so there are lots of different um, inequalities that people are seeing that they're just saying enough is enough. Yeah. And you know we we've tried, people aren't listening. And so we try something else.
0: Yeah. You know, I I was um, thinking again about the little conversation I had with, uh, with my Navy sailors uh, yesterday. And, you know, one thing that I I mentioned was, um, you know, so as of this recording, I'm a couple months away from turning 40. I've been pulled over twice in my life. Wow. Once was um, a speeding ticket that I got when I was maybe 17, I think. And I was definitely speeding, you know. Uh, another time, I think I was maybe going a little bit too fast and I got let off with a warning and a recommendation to um, update the expired tag on my license plate, right? Not In neither of those times did I have any fear for, for my safety, right, in getting pulled over. It was... You know, I was annoyed that I got pulled over because I knew I was driving too fast. But, you know, I and and just coming to the recognition that, hey, like that experience that I have in my my perspective is not the same as as what other people um, have been experiencing for a long time. I think that's kind of a a I think it's a good recognition for a lot of people like me to perhaps consider um, as they as they think about these issues.
2: Yes, I agree. I mean, so um, and I mentioned Philando Castile, who was um, shot by a police officer um, in 2016. He was pulled over at least they had on record 49 times over a period of 13 years for rather minor traffic violations, so tail light being out or maybe going a few miles over the speed limit. And that
1: that would piss anybody off. Exactly. Like even in pick a single year out of that 13 years and you're just gonna be, what the is going on here?
2: Exactly. Exactly. And so those experiences are just wildly different. And so yes, it's the the brutality and the the fatality of it, right? But it's also what leads up to that. Right. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So so, you know, we've, we've talked about um, kind of individual level racism, and you mentioned institutional or systemic type racism. Um, let, let's kind of move into talking a little bit about this racism and organizations and uh, what that is. What is systemic racism? Like, how would we know it if we saw it? Um, are organizations racist or is it people within them? What are What's your take on those types of ideas?
2: Yeah, so organizations many organizations have, um, it's not that the organization itself is racist, right. but um, the systems and the policies and the practices in place, right, uphold racism or, or racist ideals. So it can be the people within them. But a lot of times it's really, this is where we're seeing that, that structural and, and institutional racism play out with the policies that we're using. How do we know? I mean, one way to look is to to look at our organizations? What's the demographic um, breakdown of our organizations? And not just the demographic breakdown overall, but when we look throughout um, different levels and hierarchy. So as we move up the hierarchy, what we tend to see in many organizations is that even if organizations have good diversity at entry levels or lower levels, um, as you move up in hierarchy, Um, many organizations become whiter and they also become more male. Mm -hmm. If we look at the Fortune 500 and the CEOs within the Fortune 500, there are three black CEOs right now and they're all black men, but three out of 500 is not great, right? And we have no black women right now. And this
1: isn't like the year after civil rights got passed. You know, (laughs) this is like, you know, there's been enough time to bring people up, that, that excuse of, well, that, that
2: doesn't work anymore, right? Would that be fair to say? <laughs> that would be beyond fair to say, <laughs> right? So it's, it's not just, in, but I think that's a really good point because people often say, well, it's a pipeline issue. It's a pipeline issue. And my question to that is, well, why do we have a pipeline issue, right? So it's not that there aren't people who aren't qualified, who are racial minorities or who can't be qualified, um, what are the systems in place that are preventing them from getting these same opportunities to um, move in to the positions that they need, or move into the education systems that they need, and to move up?
0: Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, it sounds like it's a, it's not just a problem for employing organizations, but this goes all the way back down to uh, when you're a kid.
2: Yes. Absolutely, yeah. and that's a whole other um, topic and in, in podcast that we could spend a yeah. whole time talking I'm about sure. education.
1: So, so a couple items I want to bring up, right? Yes. So, okay, great. We got organizations. Organizations alone can't solve this, right?
2: Or, or, um, can't solve racism?
1: Yeah, like c- companies.
2: Um, I would say they can't solve all of it, but they can definitely help in the problem right so organizations are housed within our society and so i think that organizations have a responsibility A um so
1: a ceo that would say listen i pay my taxes k through 12 plus college should you know go ahead and do the bias training there i don't want to pay for it what would you say to that ceo
2: Well, if we're starting with bias training, I would say we got a little bit more work to do. Um, That's probably not where we should be starting, or or any
1: of or any of this stuff. Like, hey, listen, let let society sort this out. What would you say to that CEO?
2: You are part of society, right? So um, organizations don't live in a microcosm by themselves, Um, and so in order for us to better organizations, we need to look at how they play a role in this issue as well. And it's not just that they are the sort of um, victims of racism, right? <laughs> They're contributing to it as well.
1: Yeah, yeah. yeah. Now, I just want to make Enrica uh, money, Enrica. Like, what a drag, <laughs> you know? And I just want to say this to CEOs. First of all, if racism didn't exist, you're not spending enough money on your learning and development packages for people. Um, I've been in large IT organizations where they say, hey, listen, We've got a bunch of software developers from India. Therefore, we're diverse. They're people of color. And you're like, no way, man. Every other IT organization already has the same makeup. You know, like how come women are only in project management roles and administrative roles? Why aren't they .NET developer threes and stuff like that? And, And so there's a structure there. And so what, what do we learn from the literature and data about the advantage of companies that will just get with the program on this
2: stuff? Yeah, so actually um, McKinsey just came out with a, a great report that we're starting to see some of the data that's showing um, the positive benefits of diversity um, on performance, right? And so um, team performance, but also individual uh and, sorry, organizational performance as well. And so um, we're really starting to, to see. I think that that was some of the pushback that organizations had before. Was this idea of show me the data, show me that having a more diverse organization um, and a more inclusive organization really has benefits. And which is kind know, of a
1: would you agree with this? That's kind of a racist question. Not that the person that's asking it is a racist, but that's kind of. Now, tell me why we got to be cool to black people again.
2: Exactly. What, what's in like, it for how does, me? How does this benefit us? <laughs> <laughs> like, who cares that they're only the janitors? Um, and, gosh. you know, so having to make this case is exhausting. Uh, for right. And I just want to say it's so work.
1: exhausting that flipping McKinsey had to push a gosh darn report on this. Because, fine, we'll ask if you'll just flip and get to done on this stuff, please.
2: Yes. Um, And, I mean, we've known for a while that uh, diversity in teams has positive benefits. I think that part of what organizations were resistant to is that um, it was hard for them to see the tangible. Benefits and they weren't making the connections between the intangibles, right, in those KPIs or those key performance indicators. And we're seeing more of that, but even having those intangible benefits is really important. Um, but it's important because, you know, you're losing out if you have racist policies, you're losing out on good talent, right? So there are lots of talented people out here who we may not be hiring because. We're not letting them through the door, yeah. um, or we're losing the good talent that we have. So not being able to retain, um, and, and many organizations talk about this. Well, why can't we keep our um, talented black employees? Well, I mean, if there's just one, and they are a token for your organization, that's a problem. And so there are lots of different things that are yeah. Built so into that.
1: a couple things I want to throw out and, and resonate on this. So. People that are CEOs. Now, if you're just in a commoditized organization and there's five other CEOs like you, whatever, you're probably not that creative anyway. That's fine. Take care of your employees. Do the right thing. But when you got to make decisions at the top of the line, there's not a playbook. Right. And we deal with this all the time. Well, what should I do? And they're looking because they came up in organizations where their idea of leadership was monkey see, monkey do with the guy ahead of them. I'm a leader like the bosses I work for. Right. Well, now, hey, Jack Wagon, because you're mainly guys. I mean, I guess you could say Jacket Wagon or something, but um,
2: <laughs> J- it's Jane wagon. Jane, it's, wagon. Jill, Jill wagon, Jane Jill Wagon, Wagon, Jane Wagon.
1: All right. So you got to have a flipping moral compass. Where is the moral compass in asking what's in it for me for not making sure right. that everybody in whatever country you're in has the same flipping opportunity?
0: Yeah, that is morally bankrupt. I agree. Well, and so, you know, Enrique listed a bunch of great great reasons why, right? Diversity matters in organizations, um, from a non-moral uh type of argument, which is those are all great reasons. And but, you know, to Chris's point, it's also a a, a matter of doing the right thing for me. Yes. And, you know, what we have recognized, what Chris and I, when we started this podcast, we really wanted to explore human flourishing at work and beyond. Well, guess what? There's a big portion of our society and people in our country and around the world who are not flourishing. And a key key vehicle for them to flourish is through our organizations. And so, I mean, I think there is a, a morality argument here um, around doing the right thing and about, you know, st- if instant- it's all about
1: the bottom line for you and you're paying lobbyists about rah-rah capitalism. Well, you're cutting capitalism off from all these people. They don't have a chance to meritocracy their way on up. I mean, you, it, it's despicable. I,
2: I, yeah. God. And the morality piece is so important, right? Because um, what we know is that people who are minorities can tell if organizations are doing it just for the bottom line, mm. right? If you're bringing me in just to be the token, and that's why it's hard to um, retain people because people don't want to come in to just be the token or to be the um, quote unquote diversity hire. Yeah. Stand
1: here. Stand here for our diversity picture. So,
0: yeah, it's like, yeah, it's like man, I've been on the website and in that picture so many times because I'm the only person who looks like me. Yes, oh um, I
2: don't want to be the the one person who has to tell you about all black people and all black things <laughs> and serve on every committee because you need a woman and I'm like the only one. And so,
1: which which by the way, Enrica, thank you for playing that role for us on this podcast today. You didn't <laughs> Absolutely. have to. You,
2: Absolutely. you didn't have to.
1: To. Two white guys said just like, well, I mean, to be fair, we say, what do you want to talk about? But obviously, what's your research? It's all.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And I wanted to talk about this. Thank you for taking a
1: hit for the team.
2: You know, somebody has to do it. They do.
1: And, and, And you see this in any kind of movement for rights. Somebody like. People say, well, protests or change needs to, you know, look this way, you know? And it's like, no, it looks all the ways. You got, you know, you got MLK versus X, uh, what? Malcolm uh, X. Malcolm X, right. Those were different approaches. But, you know, sometimes you need all the different approaches. Some people will resonate with the intellectual thing. Some people resonate with some, uh, you know, a message from the heart. You know, they will ignore the academic. All and, the and ways.
0: so I, I, so I, I yeah, and I really agree with all of what you just said there, Chris. I would add that, in addition to that, that you know, I think it's great on um, especially on topics like this that can be so emotionally charged for us to have the voice of evidence and research behind it, which is why you know we we came first to a a researcher uh, on these topics to give give her the platform for it, right
2: yeah, absolutely, and I was just going to say that then, so I think that um. Chris brought up the topic, like, what do you tell CEOs about this who say there is no playbook? I say make the playbook, right? And um, build this into your strategic planning and your strategic goals. Where do we want to be? Okay. So maybe this isn't where we have been, but if this is where we want to go, then we have to build that in and also bring in the people who have the expertise to help you.
1: Yeah. Now, if they all do it at once, there's going to be a dearth of racism consultants or, or whatever. And and there's a whole business model.
2: Everybody's getting tapped right now.
1: (laughs) You you got tons of white people saying, let me come show you how to do diversity. (laughs) (laughs) And they're making a, they're making a mint. (laughs) (laughs) And
2: and to be fair, there are some um, white people who have studied this for years, who are really um, experts and are great at it. But, there are also some who just read how to be anti-racist yesterday and feel like they have all the answers to it. And, and that's not, um,
1: I didn't, I didn't even read the book. I just read the Atlantic article. I got the Atlantic article, so I'm ready to charge in. Right. That's right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. but here, let me, let me ask you this though. So, should we think, tell me about this. Like, it, what do you think about this? And then I'm just shooting off the hips here. So please stone me by email, listeners. Um, <laughs> we have another another piece of information is we've got guys that are saying they don't want to mentor women in the workplace, right? They're worried. I'm going to get a harassment lawsuit if I don't promote or like, you know, all these kinds of inclusives. And and we kind of say malarkey, guys. Get get in there and do it, Right. Now when we look at this kind of work, if you're a CEO, it says, "You know what? All right. <laughs> I I buy the moral argument. I'm in." Right? Should they have to wait for expertise and 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 to know everything before they start saying, "I want to do better and start wrestling with these things as an organization as a leader?"
2: No, I mean, I think that you can definitely start today and I don't know that they have to become the experts, right? So we don't count on our CEOs to know everything about other facets of the business, right? So our CEO, we have a CFO, a chief financial officer and Mm -hmm. a COO. So bring somebody in who is an expert on this to help or or people in um, who can help with these types of issues and provide them with the resources that they need to be able to be successful to this um, in, in these issues.
0: Okay. Yeah. You know, so one thing that I uh, just to change gears a little bit, um, one thing that I became increasingly aware of, I was aware of it already, but came increasingly aware of while thinking about this episode uh, and uh, preparing for it was just the wide range of academic disciplines and areas of thought that really go into this type of topic, you know. It's um, it's it's you know, your you have your training in industrial and organizational psychology, and that that certainly is relevant as it pertains to the workplace and so forth. Um, and then we also have, of course, areas of of sociology and communications and um, political science and history, anthropology. Right? You could go. You could really name quite a few academic disciplines that would inform all of this, and it just seems like you know, in in terms of the trajectory of intellectual thought and kind of, you know, different topics kind of um, are at different, I guess, places in that maturity, right? And it seems like there's there's a great need for um, continued and ongoing intellectual curation around this topic. And it seems like you're doing some of that or or attempting to, in terms of what you're doing with the uh, Center for Workplace Diversity and Inclusion. What's that all about?
2: Yeah, thank you for asking. So the Center for Workplace Diversity and Inclusion is really a center that we started about a little over a year ago here at the University of Memphis, that our goal is to increase the um, research that we're doing around these types of topics, but also around other areas of diversity and inclusion. So um, we have a number of scholars who are doing work in this area. So really making sure that we're getting out good work, but also translating that work and providing it to organizations so that there are evidence-based practices in place within our community, starting with um, Memphis, obviously, because we're here in Memphis, but also, providing services and and information about how to increase inclusion um, to organizations um, across the country and across the globe. And then the last piece of that um, with the center that we're really interested in doing is making sure that our education is focused on building in more diversity and inclusion. So whether that's in our curriculum, our undergrad and graduate curriculum, but also making sure that we are educating scholars from um, minority backgrounds and doing our part to make sure that people are getting opportunities that uh, maybe they haven't gotten otherwise. Hmm. That's so great.
1: When we look at this stuff at, and, and study, it's, it's an emerging conversation, right? Like, even some of the leaders have talked about their own, you know, Kendi talks about his own evolution as he's gone, like, I mean, guy's wicked smart, I mean, go get all his books, you know, type kind of person, right? But why are these issues difficult to study? And why don't you think they're addressed as much as other topics in, say, the organizational sciences?
2: So I think that they're difficult to study in part because people don't want to face racism right so we've um and we well about we're,
0: we're post-racist now right <laughs>
2: we're, we're post-racist <laughs> right
1: um and all i and, got was this lousy t-shirt
2: <laughs> right and i i missed the moment where <laughs> they told us that we were post-racist So um <laughs> you know here i am doing this research on something that apparently some people think doesn't <laughs> exist that's right um but i think that There has been, it's, it's touchy for people, like we said, at an individual level, what does that mean if, um, we find racism and, um, also people think that, you know, some people think it's not a problem. So I I think that there are lots of reasons why it's difficult to study. Also, um, quite frankly, within academia, um, speaking to IO, um, industrial organizational specifically and, and management journals, it's harder to publish some of this Mm. work, um, or it has traditionally been harder to get this in, um, journals, right. For people to see it as, um, a viable core important topics that are up there with some of our other core topics, like selection and, and training and to see it as just important to an integral to what we do.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And I would argue it's probably much more impactful and interesting uh, than than the latest psychometric technique to do blah, 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 which may marginally <laughs> increase the validity of your you know selection assessment or
2: whatever. I would agree. <laughs> but,
0: yeah.
1: So I, I, I remember listening to a friend referred me to this podcast about a, a lady who, and we'll put a link into the show notes because I cannot remember right off the top of my head, but she looked at. Um, how many black people had applied for patents and she could see these dips in the data and then (laughs) she goes and looks at what was happening historically and it was like the tulsa massacre boom they disappear you know i and she calculates all all this stuff she had some um i think what is it pulitzer prize winning economists supporting her research saying probably you've got to get this out here huh
0: Nobel Prize. I don't Nobel think a, Prize. It's a, it's a, there you go. Nobel Pulitzer's Prize. Pulitzer's for literature. Yeah. Yeah, there you go. I'm a numbskull.
1: <laughs> but numb anyway, she, she had top people in her field and she kept getting pushback on revise and resubmit. Well, well, is a hanging really an extra is a lynching, an extrajudicial killing? And it was like she had to write a second paper on racism just to get the people who were reviewing her research to even understand what the heck she was talking about
0: yeah yeah
2: um lisa cook
0: Lisa, I, Kern, yeah I, there you yeah go. i think so i, I believe is she uh, an economist i believe i think Maybe. so yeah so I, that, I think there, there's another discipline that looks at these types of issues so yeah you
2: know. and and i think that um you know this sort of circles back to what we were talking about as organizations being part of society, why it's really important to understand our history. So a lot of times we, when we're talking about race and, and racism, um, people think that in part it doesn't exist because they don't understand the history. And I think Chris, you talked about like K through 12, they, you didn't really learn some of this stuff. And and we see that um, as well. And we see that in our, um, our theories, right? And in the research- Or it was
1: sanitized. Yeah. People like, was Rosa Pars a nice old Gandhi-type figure lady that sat on a bus? Like, I, I'm hearing no, you know?
2: Yeah. And so I think that not taking historical context into account in both our research, but also in our practice, right, really does us a disservice to understanding um, racial inequality and, and systemic racism.
0: So we've talked about, you know, what race amid, racism is and this, the racism landscape, so to speak. We kind of made a little bit of a dent in that, I suppose, and talked a little bit about racism and organizations, how this is a very uh, relevant um, yet large topic as well. Um, why don't we move now and try to make a little bit of headway and talk a little bit about how do we make progress? How What is the role of leadership and leaders in this, uh, this entire domain of, um, of an issue.
2: Sure. Where should we start? Yeah. Is that, is that just the question? It's like, I, I
0: mean, that, a big one, right? <laughs> I mean,
2: I, I guess
1: let's lead off with activism pitfalls, right? You just, you're somebody that gives a rip. You just got your first Black Lives Matter t-shirt from Amazon. <laughs> you're yes. ready to go show up. What are some pitfalls for the, new, the newly minted racially aware numbskull that wants to be helpful rather than harmful?
2: The recently woke, (laughs) I would say welcome to the movement. Um, And I think that some pitfalls are being so excited that you think that you know everything um, that we're not listening, right? So um, being so quick to say like, I have all of the answers um, can be a pitfall. Uh, for white allies falling into this sort of white savior role can now, be tell, a pitfall. tell us about
1: that tell us about the white savior role
2: yeah so this is this idea of um well i am a white and i'm here to um, solve all of the problems of black people and i know the way to do it right so let me lead the charge because i have the answers and i have the power and you know, we definitely want allies to um, use their privilege and use their power, but context is so important. And not all um, Black people or other people of color want people to step in in every single context. You know that that takes power and voice away from um, people. And so, really being able to listen and. And understand that movement um and i would say i guess another pitfall would be sometimes people go the other way into the guilt the white guilt and (laughs) and saying like i've got friends
1: that say this isn't a thing but this is one of the things that can trigger me about the movement is it's like martin luther in his room flogging his back and praying about his lack of holiness yeah but i i don't know if that does anything being in the closet right and well, crying all the time. I mean, do it if you got to do it, but it, that doesn't really move the ball forward, does it?
2: It doesn't move the ball forward, right? And it's you know, learning and becoming more aware of racism isn't the goal. Isn't just to have a bunch of white people feeling guilty for being white, right? That does that it. Does, does it matter
1: if they feel guilty? Does their internal emotional content matter?
2: Um. Not really. I mean, I think that sometimes what and not saying like it doesn't matter how you feel, but it goes back to this perspective taking like you feel guilty or you feel bad because you just learned that racism existed yesterday. Well, guess what? I've been dealing with this all of my life. Right. Um, And so by expressing this guilt in to a point where it can become exhausting. Or black people because now you're taking the focus off of the true issue and making it about your guilt or making it about um if you've um read the person i mean the b dolly um choose book and she talks about this so i feel i want to be a great ally and asking people like did i do a good job so to speak in my allyship you're gonna and- get
1: your your post-Protestant catharsis points, I don't know. I just, oh, it's Yeah, no, But it turned turned me off to the movement. I gotta gotta say some of that stuff, there was never a black academic that turned me off to the movement. But watching a lot, as somebody that came out of a strongly charismatic evangelical experience, and this may offend some listeners, this was my journey, you have your journey, live long and prosper. But I I didn't leave that kind of world to come over to this side of some social justice area that I care about to find that same kind of moralizing. You know, if you see a kid, Sam Harris says this in one of his podcasts, if you see a kid drowning in knee-deep water and you've got a brand new suit on, like you can even be hacked off at that kid for getting in that water. But at the end, it doesn't matter. I mean, it's your emotions don't matter at all, but at the end, it matters that you do the
0: right thing, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and what I see um, just speaking from my own experiences, I have seen among, you know, other white people who I know, there is a lot of this kind of self-flagellation going on about, you know, I, Oh, you know, I need to, I need to feel guilty. You need to feel guilty. And that's how progress is made. And and I don't necessarily agree that that is the, the key component here. I think it's, um it's understanding and uh taking meaningful action
1: and what was the term that you used for that what was the term you used
0: self-flagellation
1: no 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 (laughs) enrica enrica what what white guilt is it white 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 fragility white guilt is that the definition for that behavior Yeah, white
2: guilt it's it's definitely And, and so
1: and and just to clarify you're saying hey white guilt like may not be the most helpful thing here and actually can co-opt what's really needs to happen and go on. Right.
2: Yes. I, I think so. I I think that, um, and the goal isn't to make like all white people feel guilty for being white. It's saying, listen, we have a very serious problem with racism, with systemic racism. Um, how do we take steps to get beyond this and to move forward in a meaningful way?
0: And and the truth is is that you know I, I believe the latest estimates are that by about twenty forty, uh, the United States is going to be a majority minority country, right? Meaning yes. that uh, most people, more than fifty percent of the of the population, will be um, people of color and people who are in minority uh, minority groups, right? So, um, <laughs> but uh, so the uh, you know the, the point being that the, that that is the 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 trend. And, you know, I think um, it just behooves all of us to take a more thoughtful and meaningful and understanding and empathetic approach towards the entire topic.
2: I agree. And I I think that what you just said about being thoughtful is really important, right? So we can't just do this um, performative work and and stay there, right? So um, this idea of brands just putting like Black Lives Matter. Right. And that's all. And we just to, stop to sell putting, a T-shirt to sell a T-shirt or to put the sticker on the window and say, that's it. You know, we're we're woke now. We're fully woke. Um, you really have to do the work to make the structural change, to change the policies and the practices. And at the individual level, change our behavior. Right. So what are the behaviors that I'm engaging in or that I'm allowing other people to engage in and not Stepping in and saying, like, hey, that's not okay. And that's where we're really going to see the progress.
0: So, you've mentioned the word ally a couple of times. What's an ally and why do they matter?
2: Yeah. So, allies, these are really people who are not a part of the group that is experiencing inequity, discrimination. Um, So, in this case, if we're talking about racism, white people would be allies, Um, people who care about the plight of um, the people experiencing racism and who want to really um, make their experiences better at the individual level and also at the societal level um, with being part of the solution. They matter because they often have, well, one, they're not experiencing um, the discrimination. So they're not in the position of lower status they often have more power. So if we're talking about white people in society and in organizations, they have more resources, more power, um, and they are often, their networks are different, right? So they have the connections to the people who have the power and the resources, the ability to change these policies and practices. Um, And they also um, matter because You know, some of the research shows that for better or worse, they're often seen as um, legitimate and and more legitimate at the individual level when they're confronting racial discrimination Mm -hmm. and racial bias. So um, some research looking at confronting shows that when people who are within that minority group who are experiencing the problem confront racism, right, they're seen as complainers. Whereas well, yeah, when... of course you
1: want more equality. You just want to take all the power, don't you? Exactly. <laughs> exactly.
2: You just want all the power. Whereas when, um, white when a people... white person <laughs> says
1: it, you're like, what are you going to
2: say? Right. <laughs> you, you know... <laughs> like maybe there really is a problem. Here. Right.
1: And, and, so and it stinks that it's that way. It's, it does. It's, but it is. It is what it is, right?
2: It is what it is. And so, um, but it doesn't have to be that way forever. So it is right. what it is right now, but we can make the change.
1: So let's talk about, you know, I know within HRC, and I I, I have a lot of nexus with the LGBT community, and, you know, they talk about, so that I see this modern discussion happening on social media and with some of my peers and stuff. Well, HRC will talk about, okay, I'm aware now of LGBT issues. And they move all the way down this stepwise progression all the way to, okay, let's go change some laws, right? Mm -hmm. Is there kind of that kind of progression for people as they begin to come out of not being aware of these issues and moving to somebody who'd actually be a helpful ally?
2: Yes, I mean, I I think that the same basic processes um, occur when we're talking about helping to fight prejudice and discrimination regardless of, the target group, um, there are definitely some things that are unique to the target group. So if we're talking about the LGBT community versus racial minorities, but, you know, the first step is becoming aware, understanding what the problem is, um, understanding manifestations of, of the problem, and then how do we move forward? So, okay, now that we we have the knowledge base um, and we sort of recognize what the problem is, um, are we able to recognize that in real life? So when we see an instance occur, when we see policies and practices, are we able to say like, hey, um, this is racist or there's um, racism upholding these things. So moving from understanding just like what it is to being able to recognize it, and then having knowledge, and this really builds off of um, the bystander intervention model of when do people step in? right? Mm. And and what's likely to happen. So you have to recognize that there's a problem, right? And that it's an emergency. So recognizing that racism is a problem that needs to be addressed. And then you have to have the knowledge of what can I do, right? Like, how can I um, fix this issue? Or how can I step in? What is something that could be helpful? And then you have to act, right? So it's not enough to just like, know that there's a problem and know what to do if you stop there then no help is given but you actually have to act
1: right but you you don't start off with finding about it this morning and proposing meaningful legislation by to by tea time right
2: well i mean who knows if that legislation if you just found out about it this morning chances are whatever you're proposing is probably not the most meaningful thing
1: But if you're if you're talking with a friend, right, you're starting to read, you're starting to learn, you want you want to share about something that should be near and dear to everybody's heart. Really, if if you're uh, you might not want to start at that far end of that spectrum about legislative change when they don't even understand maybe how the different shapes of how racism right like it could be helpful, I think. At least, and I've had friends that have been very gracious with me. Gosh, it's a the painful conversation as I'm trying to wrap my head. But to take me step by step, right? I, uh, do you think that's helpful, that kind of working down that maturity model, assessing who am I talking to? Where are they right now? And maybe i start at the beginning of the story rather than at the middle or the end.
2: Yes. I mean, everybody is at a different place in terms of their maturity and understanding. Of racism and and so it is really important to understand where are people to know where to start and there are definitely there's work to be done at the legislation end or at the policy end and there are people who have the expertise and the knowledge to to start there right now um, but it's also okay to be you know earlier on in maturity and to listen more and to gain more of an understanding and to also take time to thoughtfully and carefully strategize about what the best next step is. And so, like I said earlier, racism has been around in this country for over 400 years. And so if we're thinking about this at organization level, to think that, oh, we need to throw together a bunch of policies by next week and implement all of these things without I wish it could be so I I,
1: I wish it could be so so bad
2: (laughs) I wish it could be so too but you know we have to think about what's the the long-term goal right Mm. and are we doing things that are aligned with that and so if it requires taking a little bit more time for some things I think that that's better if we're going to get it right as opposed to rushing to do something because we're just trying to say that we did something and there's no actual real benefit of it.
0: Yeah. So some great stuff there, Enrique. really great stuff. Uh, Any other concrete actions that you would recommend or want to see from leaders, people, organizations?
2: Yeah. So I think that concrete actions, we're we're seeing some really great things that are going on. So organizations saying, hey, we recognize that we have some issues um, with diversity and, and inclusion, or we wanna be a part of the solution at a societal level. So I think that that's a really great first like recognition and acknowledgement. So now the concrete action needs to be figuring out what are the things that we can do right? So what's going on in our own house, our own organization? Um, what does it look like in terms of inclusion here and, and diversity? And what are the things that we can do? So bringing in, like we said, people who have expertise and knowledge about uh, diversity and inclusion and, and racism and um, other facets of diversity and inclusion and, and building this into really our strategic plan and starting to implement some of these things, creating some, um, measure So how are we going to measure progress? So oftentimes that's why we're not really seeing the movement of a needle. We're, we're saying like, Oh, yeah, there's no
1: metrics. There's no, no metrics. metrics, right? No. Congratulations. Um, you achieved your no metrics a thousand percent.
2: <laughs> exactly. And, and so really just taking some of these steps, I think is helpful.
1: Awesome. So, so one other question before we yes. wrap up here. All right. So you're, yeah, let's put you in the seat. Yeah, so, Enrica, you're you're a CEO of a 5,000-person organization. Okay. You've got a numbskull in your org, right? She's been filmed on social media. You know, like, what was the guy in Central Park who was with the Autobahn Society? Um.
2: Yeah, Christian Cooper.
1: Yeah, right? That person's in your organization. Do you, do you fire him?
2: So, the woman... Um... So he was the man. But Amy, do I fire Amy Cooper? Yes.
1: Right. So now now she's out in society, right? She's kind of a social problem. Like, does she just starve to death because nobody will hire her? What what happens? Right? Because it, the, the goal is, you know, like and when we think about like say criminal justice, is it punishment or is it reform? When we look at when you've got somebody in your organization that does. I mean, I'd canter right away. Like, I'm totally with you, Enrique. But now now as a society, what what do we do with this horde of unemployed numbskulls that are wandering the streets crying because of their behavior on social media?
2: Yeah, I just I don't really see that as the major issue. But I do think that you bring up a good point of, you know, the goal isn't punishment right? And, and um, I think this sort of, that would lead us to kind of the same issues that we have just in a different form. Mm. Um, now, is it reform? Yes. Or maybe rebuilding, right? Um, so not taking what we have and just trying to fix it a little bit. But sometimes we have to kind of break that down and rebuild into something new. And so I think that, you know, hopefully we're seeing that and, and people can, I believe, make change. So I, I think that people do things, they can be remorseful for it. She'll get another job. Um, I and... mean, I wouldn't
1: hire her if I if her resume came across my desk. I mean, that would just be anathema, right?
2: I think she'll get another job. Um, I, I, I just, I don't think that that's a huge issue. Um, but I do think that for organizations that are saying, Hey, we really want to make strides in diversity and inclusion. One of the things that we want to look at is, are we hiring people who are aligned with these goals and doing a little bit of work to see, like, you know, do they believe in these goals? And are yeah, and there was such a low bar. It.
1: This wasn't like maybe kind of racist. This was just completely, you know, it's yeah. like we were talking about implicit bias and all these little small things. Not an aggregate; they're very big. But this was a case of explicit bias, like on video. It was so anyway. Thank thanks for weighing in on that, Erika.
0: You're yeah. welcome. And obviously, as we said at the beginning of this episode, this is a huge topic and. Our goal here today was to try to add to the conversation in a meaningful way um, with uh, an expert in the field. Um, and I, I hope that we've done that. I think that we've done that. I've been very pleased with uh, and just thrilled to have Enrique on, on the podcast so with us. Thank you so much. Thank um, you for coming you know, on. Yeah, absolutely. It's uh It's really great. So we talked about, you know, this whole topic of race organizations and the role of leaders, um, the racism landscape, racism in organizations, and then followed up with some of these ideas around making progress and the role of of leaders and leadership. Uh, Enrique, is there anything else that you want to share with the world, anything that you haven't discussed already?
2: Yeah, I would just say this is, thank you both, um, Jen and Chris, for inviting me to talk about this. I I would say we're, we're just scratching the surface, right? There's mm. so much that we could talk about. Um, there's so much to, to do and to learn. So I would say if people are really serious about um, being part of the solution, just continue to think about what are the small things that I can do. And those small things really do add up. And so I'm excited to see where we go next.